Hello, can you hear me? Christina, hello. This podcast addresses serious topics such as suicide that may be upsetting to some. Please use discretion while listening. Hey guys, welcome. It is Monday, which means another episode of Mental Illness and Me. I'm super excited to have Christina with us, and I'm going to have her tell us a little bit about herself. You're up, Christina. Hi, my name is Christina, and I am... 25 years old, which is crazy. (laughs) I got to play softball for a good majority of my life. I got a full ride scholarship to El Paso Community College where I played for two years until I was supposed to play an extra year because I redshirted my freshman year, but um, I tore my Achilles tendon. And so I had to hang up the cleats for good. And that was unfortunate. Um, I grew up in Salt Lake uh, my whole life, 18 years until college. And then in my middle of my freshman year, my parents up and moved. And now everyone in my family lives in Portland, Oregon. I live in Arizona. Uh, After Texas, I moved up to Oregon for about two years. And then um, I met an awesome guy and down in Texas. And we moved up to Oregon and originally... Uh, his daughter was supposed to move up to Washington, but her mom found a job here in Arizona. And so we ended up coming here to Arizona and, uh, we've been here for the past two years and it is hot (laughs) and we are looking forward to the day that we can move. (laughs) You have, you're having another family member join you. We are. I'm due in two weeks and we are, we're welcoming a little son. His name's going to be Jameson Jackson. Uh, that's exciting. <laughs> We've uh, been working really hard at getting him into our lives. And so we're just excited. These last two weeks have been the longest two weeks of my life. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I wanted to, we wanted to talk a little bit about your unique journey that you've had with mental illness. I actually remember when you were my student, um, knowing that you were dealing with some diagnoses and things like that all the way back from when you were a young teenager. Um, So I guess it kind of leads into uh, a little bit about myself is I am a uh, child of adoption and my birth family, all of them struggle, unfortunately, with a lot of mental illness and a lot of um, issues that are brought on by, uh, you know, just unfortunate circumstance, but also by the use of drugs and alcohol and which, which does play a big impact and role. I, I, on a lot of people's lives, I feel like. And, uh, um, so kind of, kind of to lead into it by the time I was two, I was in about, uh, 30 something different homes and it was, it was, you know, I don't remember much, but, um, that has a huge impact on, people growing up. I, I mean, just because you don't remember, it doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. I, I struggled a lot growing up with abandonment issues and trusting people. Um, for instance, a little happy story though, that is one of my favorite to tell is about me and my adoptive father, Randy. He's amazing. He's my best friend. Um, he, uh, when I first met him, I was afraid of men because I, I wasn't really surrounded by them very often. And my dad 
what he did was my mom was struggling because I just was constantly on her hip, constantly wanting attention, wanting to be held when I, cause I got adopted when I was about two and a half, three years old. And, um, my mom couldn't do it anymore. And so she got my dad a bowl of chocolate chips, put them in front of him, put me down next to him and said, make friends. And <laughs> he put a little trail out and, uh, we became best friends. He had chocolate and that's all that it was needed to get me into his life. And, um, you know, it, it, that kind of, uh, shows how much my parents do, do care and how much, you know, a kid does or, or a child or really anyone needs a, a really strong support system when it comes to stuff like this, because, um, my parents always knew that I was going to struggle because adoption in itself comes with struggles. And even when you're adopted as a baby, uh, there, there's always that aspect of um, just, just confusion a little bit of not, not really understanding why, especially as a kid, you always ask why. And it's not until you're an adult that you realize the why and why it was so important. Once I got into about uh, third grade, I started doing, uh, therapy sessions and, um, it didn't really work out at first because, uh, a lot of the time with kids, it's a hit and miss where you can, you can do really well, or you can do really poor. So they kind of, they pulled me out of it, but then come fourth grade, uh, I found this therapist and she was amazing. I loved her. She was wonderful. And my parents, uh, we kept going. We went, I went, I think twice a week and, um, that she brought up the idea that, you know, I probably had ADD or ADHD and, um, they, de they decided to start me on medications when I was about 10. That was the first time I noticed that something w was, I guess how I played it in my head was, uh, something's wrong with me that I was, I was broken and that I didn't know I was weird. <laughs> that's, that's how I felt. Uh -huh. And so when I got told that I was going to start taking medications, I actually ended up under my, at the time school counselor, uh, I ended up under his desk because I, I didn't like feeling like I was different and that I wasn't going to be accepted and that I was weird. And that the only way that I could be normal was to take this pill. It's amazing that you had that because Adults have that resistance all oh, the yeah. time, but it's amazing that even as a young child, you felt that resistance of, I don't want to be dependent on this. I don't want to be weird. No one I knew was like me. No one, no one I knew felt sad for some reason and couldn't explain why, or would just shut down out of nowhere and didn't under, like, I, I didn't understand why I would do it. I just recognized that I did do it. They put me on some medication. I can't recall. I've been, I've been on several <laughs> and, um, I, I instantly developed a pill phobia where I, I couldn't handle the texture on my tongue. Um, I couldn't handle it. It was too big. I always felt like whenever I swallowed a pill, it would get stuck. And I would sit there and cry <laughs> to my parents saying, I can't do this. It's, it's too big. It's too big. I can't do it. I can't take this pill. And so it got pretty bad to the point of my mom and dad would have to sit there and watch me take my meds. I would do everything I could. I would hide it under my tongue. I would uh, tuck it in my cheek. And, you know, 
Sometimes I got away with it. Other times my parents knew exactly what I was doing. My counselor was wonderful though. She uh, came up with an idea of what I would do is I would take a piece of bread and I would practice, I would roll up little tiny balls (laughs) and I would practice taking those. So it was always since I was 10, just a struggle for me to regularly take medication. And um, so I, I was constantly on and off them, which definitely when you have a mental illness, um, it's, it's not, that's not good. <laughs> you're not helping yourself. You're kind of making things worse. I still went to therapy um, in fifth grade, sixth grade, um, sixth grade. I got into my first uh, school fight. <laughs> um, and that was when they realized, you know, you might have some anger issues too. <laughs> and uh, we worked on that. And then finally, I remember going um, a couple of times where it was an all day event um, where I would go and get tested and I would go to these places, these huge business-like buildings, and I would spend all day being tested, um, from a computer to math questions, to having to repeat what people were telling me to explaining why I, and I think something that was hard for me as a kid was they would ask me why I would do certain things And I didn't have an answer for them. I couldn't say, well, you know, I think it was my abandonment. Um, (laughs) Instead, like, I don't know. I don't know why I do what I do. Well, why are you impulsive? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I do things and I think about them later. I don't, I didn't think it was an issue until I kept getting pointed out that it was an issue. Well, and it's hard because even as an adult, that is really hard to articulate why you do the things you do or why you feel the way you feel. And so for a kid who's had a a background, especially like you had with the first few years of your life, to expect a child to be able to articulate that, it's almost impossible. You want to say what they want you to say. You're like, what do you want me to say so that I can stop being here? It was hard to explain to my friends like, oh, where are you going? Oh, why are you missing school today? Oh, and it was hard for me like, oh, I'm going to go get tested because my parents or people think something's wrong with me (laughs) because I didn't realize that I was really having issues until probably high school when I said, oh, people are right. Something is kind of some, something's not working here. You know, I think it was also denial in a sense of like, not wanting to be different, not wanting to actually think that there could possibly, I could possibly be being affected by things that were going on in my life. But I, there weren't people to talk to other than adults, but I would know when I was having a bad day. And so what I would do is I would go to my school counselor and I would be allowed to sit in the counseling room and work on school down there and um, just, you know, isolate myself, which kind of, kind of, in my opinion, taught me a horrible um, coping mechanism of self-isolation early on. I think even 10 years ago, which is Mm -hmm. when you were in high school, I think even then it was like so much less talked about than it is now. Because I've had some students now that have struggled, but they have been able to talk to their friends and help their friends understand and have a support system within their friends. And they don't find it to be as weird. But I think that 10 years ago, that absolutely wasn't the case. I never felt like I belonged. And then whenever I would have issues, you know, I would try to reach out to some of my friends in high school and kind of just being dismissed. And um, almost almost like, oh, well, you'll get through it. You'll get over it. It'll be fine. But it was also trying to talk to people who 
weren't in my situation or who could understand, especially my adoption and, um, you know, my history and stuff like that. That was really, that was hard too, because that played a huge factor in my life. And, um, it, it was frustrating for me to have all of these built up emotions and feeling like if I talked about it, that I would lose friends. But I also had gotten diagnosed my sophomore year with PTSD. And um, that was after I actually, there's a, there's a school function and we all went to this camp and at this camp um, we weren't allowed to contact our parents. Um, We, (laughs) our, our phones were taken from us and all this stuff. And uh, we had to stand up um, if something ever happened to you or sit down if it hadn't. And I had to leave because they were asking questions that were very triggering. They, they also showed this video and it still burned in my mind of there was this line on the street and we had to watch this line on the street and they were talking and they were telling the story. And then at the end of the story, they told us that the line we'd been watching for the past 10 minutes was the line of somebody who had been killed and dragged behind a car as a hate crime this whole camp and you were there for a week it was just horrible and so i came home and um all it did was it was trigger me in so many different ways of things that had happened growing up things that had happened uh during my adoption things that had happened before my adoption and um it made it 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 made it really hard to cope and so it made it so i couldn't sleep and so then they put me on more medication and uh it wasn't like I was getting quality sleep. It was, I was taking these pills and then all of a sudden I was awake and it it didn't feel like you fell asleep. It just felt like you took a pill, closed your eyes and then boom, your alarm was going off. Um, Finally, my therapist said, you know, I think that you have PTSD from the things that have happened in your past, but I think it was this camp that really triggered it. But the one thing that actually worked surprisingly was she did hypnosis I was able to get the first that I was able to get sleep for the first time in months with that plus some medication. It made it, it made it easier for me to finally get some sleep. I told my mom about what happened at the camp and she was furious because they, I, I at one point I begged to call my mom. I just said, I want to go home. I don't want to be here. And I wasn't given that opportunity. <laughs> that was another pivotal moment of my life that kind of sent me down a really, really bad path. And um, junior year came and I instantly started off on the wrong foot because of trying to get over this PT, not get over it, but trying to cope with it, trying to deal with it. And, um, you know, I, they switched my medications again. I was on all sorts of stuff. And uh, then as I went through junior year and that was a rough year, Um, I was off my meds and a lot of things were just hitting the fan for me. And um, I ended up, you know, attempting suicide my junior year. And it uh, put me in uh, uni at the University of Utah, where it was a little, it was a kid's um, clinic. They wanted to try me on birth control to see if that would help regulate my hormones, my emotions, and see if that would help me at all. That helped control the hormones, which helped, you know, move things forward. But yet it was another pill I had to take. And um, 
even though they're tiny pills, it's, it's hard. I mean, at that point it'd been seven years of taking medication after medication after medication. And even though it was so small, I still had this pill phobia and I was always scared to take pills. And, um, eventually I finally got out of uni and, you know, I did some, I, I did like half, I finished my junior year half at, uh, the university's hospital and then half in school and, um, just trying to rebalance myself. And I went and saw my therapist and stuff. And, um, then after that, my senior year came and it was just kind of a, I, I don't know really what clicked because I wasn't, I wasn't on medications my senior year, but I really had a good set of people in my corner. Um, I had a lot to look forward to my senior year. I mean, we went to New York and that was one of my I still brag about going to New York about how much fun it was and all the cool things we got to do. And I got to go to my first concert. I got to, uh, you know, I, I got to do a lot of stuff. I had a, I had a lot to look forward to my senior year. I got, I got my full ride offer. I was doing really well in softball. I, you know, I had a really good, I, the thing is, is that when everything hit the fan in junior year, it also gave me and my parents a chance to reconnect. And, um, it wasn't until I finally was able to say, you know, sometimes I feel like there's this bar there, or there's this finish line and that right as I'm about to cross it, it moves. And I've, I never feel like I succeed well enough for anybody. And, um, I think that was kind of a wake up call for my parents because that's the last thing you want your kid to think is that they're not successful or that, you know, they're failing every step of the way. And my parents really laid off my senior year and, you know, I was able to get good grades. I wasn't stressing out. I wasn't, um, it, it was just easier for me and my parents to get along, to be able to talk to them. I could go to my mom and say, me and my mom came up with a system where, um, if I did something that I knew she was going to get mad at, I'd say, so mom, I need you to be my friend. <laughs> I need you to not be mad at me right now. And she would take a breath and she'd say, okay. And we would talk and she, uh, it was, it was easier. And, you know, um, I think they were really worried because my senior year, I spent a lot of it as an 18 year old, which meant that my adoption was no longer private. And my, uh, birth family was able to reach out to me. Um, I, I got to right. decide who I met. I got to decide when I met, I got to decide how long I met them. And, um, it was, it really, and it wasn't being controlled by my parents either. And so I didn't, it felt like I finally had some, some type of control in my life over something that was really, really, you know, detrimental to me for so long. And, um, I did this without medication and, you know, I, I probably should have been on it because there were days that were pretty bad, but you know, a lot of them were good. I, I, I went off to college and when you move away from home for the first time, that first year is hands down the worst, especially if you're not able to see your parents. And I didn't get to see my parents for almost a year. <laughs> my freshman year was rough. I mean, every freshman year apparently is, but, um, you know, just adjusting to having to be fully 100% accountable for yourself um, from paying bills to be showing up to class to showing up to practice, making sure you're organized, making sure everything's, you know, up to par, you're following the rules. And um, it 
that was rough. And so I ended up getting back on my medication. I took it upon myself and um, I didn't have a therapist down there either, which was really, really hard for me. And so I just went to our team doctor and talked to him. And that was, so I, I was able to get on some medications. No one on my team knew about my depression until um, probably halfway through the semester. I, I told my roommate at the time that, you know, you know, I have some issues <laughs> then because she noticed that I grind my teeth really, really bad at night. And she asked me, why do you do that? And I said, well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's part of um, my PTSD and my depression and my anxiety. And she's like, oh, you really, you really have real anxiety because a lot of the time the team would, I think, feel weird because I would go from being very talkative to very quiet because I didn't know how to explain, oh, today's a bad day and the meds aren't working. I I miss my home and I didn't know how to, it, it, a lot of times they would just be like, oh, she's homesick. And, you know, um, right. And so I didn't, I didn't feel like trying to justify the way I was acting, the way I was feeling based off of these disorders. And so it was almost like I was ashamed to have these things again. Because I mean, I, I went to El Paso saying, I get to finally be who I want to be. I get to pick the narrative. And um, I, I didn't want to be the girl who has depression. I didn't want to be, oh, she's having another episode. I wasn't going to let the past 18 years of my life continue to define how people thought of me. And um, yeah. when you shove those things down for so long, especially with mental illness, they come back whether you like it or not. And they come back with a vengeance right. at that. It was my final for my organic chemistry class, my freshman year of college. And I, I couldn't calm down. I was, I was freaking out over this final because it was a make or break moment for me. And so I took, I took one of my medications or I took one of my pills that I was supposed to take. It was Wellbutrin, I believe at the time. And I took it and I sat there and I I couldn't calm down. I couldn't calm down. And finally um, I said, you know what, maybe if I take another one, I'll be okay. I took another one. I sat there, sat there, nothing was coming and I, I couldn't, I still couldn't feel calm. And so I was pacing and I was pacing and I still had about four or five hours till my uh, final. And so I said, you know what, I'll go ahead and take two more. And, and I'll, this is okay. I'm in the middle of my final and I all of a sudden realize uh, something's not right here. I can't, I can't even focus period now. And so after my final, um, I told my roommate, I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. And I went to the hospital and at first they said, oh, well, have you ever, you know, done suicide, had suicidal ideations or any of that? And I lied and said no, because I didn't want that to be, I didn't want to be put in a mental facility because that really wasn't my intent. And so at that moment, I realized I really need to get myself into check because one, that wasn't what my intention was. And two, I can't keep ignoring this. This is something that needs to be addressed and I need to stop being worried about everyone judging me for it because all it's doing is making me worse. I was so worried about everyone else's opinion and worrying about, you know, what everyone else thought and worried that people were talking about it or people were talking about me. And they said, you know, it's not generalized anxiety. I think it's social anxiety. And so, you know, they switched my medications again. And every time you take a new medication, it's, you have a, you have to wait for it to get into your system. And a lot of time it's a two week period. Those two weeks are so hard 
because you're having to convince yourself, especially if you have a pill phobia, that what you're taking is going to help you because you don't feel those results in two weeks for someone who has, you know, especially strong anxiety is very, that's hard. That's hard to deal with. Those two weeks are very long. And, um, that's when I actually met my ex-husband and my ex-husband, um, was in the military and, um, I went into my sophomore year of college and decided at 20, let's get married after only knowing him a month. (laughs) I was young and dumb. I made a mistake of, you know, getting married so quickly and so young. And it ended up being a really, really bad situation for me. Uh, he, he was very anti-medication. He felt that he knew what was best. And he felt that uh, he, I didn't need meds. I didn't need therapy. Um, all I needed was him. I was having a panic attack. And I, I ran to, the, to my bathroom at the time where I kept my medication and I tried to take my meds and he took them from me and he flushed all of my meds. He, he, start, he started controlling what I ate. He started controlling how often I worked out. He, um, he, he, I never felt good enough, I, and it, which you know, led to furthering my PTSD, furthering my, um, it, it just, it brought up all of these things that I grew up with, abandonment issues. It brought up all of this stuff again. In June, we got into an altercation where he was super drunk and, um, I, I got mad about something and I threw a shoe across the room and he came from the other end of the house and, uh, kind of shoved me <laughs> and I ended up calling my mom and she wasn't able to answer. And I, I got a hold of one of my friends and told her what happened. And, uh, the next day I was going on a trip to Wyoming with one of, uh, my friends and I got in the car and me and her were driving and my mom called me. And it was in this moment, this call with my mom, that I realized that something was terribly wrong with my relationship Um, because she said, hey, are you okay?" And I had to lie to my mom and I wasn't even around him. And I said, yeah, mom, everything's fine. And she said, are you sure you called me at like three o'clock in the morning? I said, yeah, I was just just a rough night. Just wanted to call and talk. And the fact that I had to lie to her made me realize that I was in a place that was not good. (laughs) And when you deal with abandonment issues, people are like, Oh, you're afraid of people leaving you. And it's like, no, it's, you don't feel like you've, you're good enough. And so the abandonment issues played a huge aspect for my mental health of, you know, I have to be with someone to feel wanted. And, and so um, I wasn't on medications again. And I was just, you know, honestly, I, I got really involved into alcohol and I was drinking a lot. And so I was self-medicating that way. And, um, it didn't, it, 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 I just, I wasn't mentally in a good place when I did meet my ex-husband, I became obsessed with fitness. I, uh, like to the point of, I, I wasn't really eating. I was kind of just drinking and working out and going playing softball and then repeat. And I, it would, I would go for six hours for a practice, go home, work out for three more hours and then go on like a five mile run. And I, it was just, it became this, uh, this really unhealthy obsession of mine to just be perfect. And so that kind of played a point into how I ended up even meeting my ex-husband where I was at the gym, which is how I met him. And, um, if I wasn't so obsessed with this perfectionism, 
I maybe I wouldn't have met him. Maybe I maybe I could have, you know, found a better, healthier outlet because working out's healthy and everything. But, you know, it, it turns into this obsessive compulsive thing for me. And yeah, I have OCD. And so I have to be so careful anytime I start some sort of diet or anytime I get a little bit overweight mm -hmm. or whatever, I just know that I'm going to start uh, becoming obsessive and becoming yes. extreme. And it's, it's scary. It, it really is. That's why eating disorders and OCD yep. are so closely linked. Yep. It, it was, it was bad. And I mean, and when I, when with my ex-husband, he was trying to force an eating disorder. I mean, he was sitting there, <laughs> his dream goal for my life was to become an Instagram model. When I finally got the courage to finally leave him, um, that in itself was a huge, rough patch for me because um it was having to accept the fact that you know not that it was my fault but that you know I had a role to play in my own mental well-being and that I couldn't just put it all on him that you know I need to take responsibility right. for the fact that I wasn't taking my medication I wasn't you know I wasn't doing what I needed to do and um that I I did let it go on because I was so happy that someone was constantly choosing me. And even though he wasn't, because he ended up having an affair and it was just, it was, you know, it was trying to separate the fact that there were a lot of things that he did wrong, but there were a lot of things that I could have taken control of that had I been in a better place. I actually got checked back into a mental hospital because, um, he had, I, I had just recently had a friend pass away that I grew up with from, um, depression and that, that was really hard on me. And then my ex-husband had been calling me and calling me saying, you know, Oh, I'm suicidal. Oh, I'm doing this. Oh, I'm doing this. Trying to guilt trip me into coming back. And it was just, it kind of made me collapse because I wasn't on medication. I didn't, I didn't really have anyone there. Uh, they diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder. And, um, they put me on this stuff. I can't remember what it's called. And it's this antipsychotic and it, it was oh, probably the worst thing that they could have possibly done to me. Um, I, it was, it was horrendous. I gained like 60 pounds and it didn't help. It made things worse. And it was because it was the wrong diagnosis. And so, um, once I got out of the hospital, um, I ended up calling my parents and I asked to move home and they moved me home and I moved up to Oregon with them and moved in with them. And I started seeing a therapist and seeing a doctor and they said, um, you have no, this is not your diagnosis. This is not, this is not right. And that's when they came up with the um, obsessive compulsive disorder. I finally had the proper diagnosis and with the OCD and with um, social anxiety and PTSD and, de and major depressive disorder was also something else that they, uh, they went from depression to major depression, major depressive disorder. And um, it was crazy to me because the two pills that I needed to take were like the tiniest pills I have ever seen. I can take it every day now. Yeah. And a lot of that, I honestly also think attribute to my now husband because he is totally 1000 million percent on board of mental health. And he is like, you've got to take yeah. your meds. You've got to stay on top of it. You've got to do this. And when I'm having a bad day, he says, I, I'm not trying to be pushy, but have you taken your meds today? 
Have you, have you done what you, have you right. taken your you time? Have you done this? Have you been drinking enough water? And it was, that was kind of a pivotal moment for me when I met him five years ago now, um, because he's like my own little therapist, <laughs> you, you know, and he, right. he was one of the first ones to not make me feel like if I didn't take this medication, that I was this horrible, horrible person, <laughs> but that if I took them, right, it would make me feel better. And he said, you know, I know, I know it's rough. Maybe we need to adjust your meds. Maybe you need to talk to your doctor. And it was a right. support system that I really needed. He has his own, um, he was medically retired from the military. He, he has, he served two tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and um, he was medically discharged because his uh, vehicle was hit by an IED and um, he suffers from PTSD himself, but he, uh, he, he is on top of it all the time. <laughs> he, he doesn't, you know, he, he, he wants to be better, not just for himself, but for the family. And that's, that's something that I needed to have. And because, you know, seeing right. someone willing to sacrifice what's really hard and, you know, admitting that you have these issues made it easier for me to say, you know what, if he can do it, I can do it too. So I, I wrote down mm -hmm. this question as you were talking, cause I mean, seriously, I don't think I've ever heard of somebody going through so many different medications and so mm -hmm. many different diagnoses. And I wanted to ask after everything you've mm -hmm. been through with the medication, what do you feel about medication now? I, I don't think it's evil. <laughs> I don't think that it's the worst possible thing in the world. I think it comes down to the person. I mean, I know there are some people who are able to go on medication, get their life together, do what they need to do, and then they go off it and they do just fine. But I know for me, um, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that I'm, for me, I'm going to be on meds probably for the rest of my life because I like who I am on them now. Right. I don't see it as a crutch. I see it as a, I have wires in my brain that have been crossed and you know, this is how I get them to line up better. There's such a bad stigma about medication. And I think the biggest issue is finding the right medication. And I, it's hard. It's hard as I think as a patient to not get frustrated when you can't find yeah. the right meds because all you want to do is feel normal with my son, especially because I, I, that's one thing that I, it was actually deterring me from having kids was because of such a long line of mental illness in my birth family. Um, I, I have always been worried that, you know, what if he turns out this way? And then I realized, you know what, it doesn't matter because I'm going to be the parent who is going to give him the tools to be successful. And if he doesn't take advantage of them, at least I'm doing my part by giving him that chance. And I don't want him to feel like he left a stone unturned. I, I just want our kids to not think that mental issues are, you know, this, this horrible, horrible thing. It's like, no, you know, sometimes... I'm kind of grateful for what I have because it does make me more empathetic. It makes me, it makes me more sympathetic. It makes me say, you know what? I bet that they are going through a really tough time and I know what that's like. I know what it's like to want to be perfect and feel like you can't make that mark 
I know what it's like to feel like no one can hear you and to feel like you're all by yourself. And this is what helped me. And I'm hoping that that'll, you know, branch off to my kids that if they feel that way, one, I can be there for them better. Um, and two, that they can be there for people better. And, you know, and I'm hoping that in a way it's more of a superpower and less of a, less of, of a disability. Special thanks to Daniel Sowards for the audio editing, to Carrie Randall for the graphic art, and to Shiny Head Productions for the original music.